The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Maybe I'm responding because I have had reviews in the past that have accused me of not writing about white people. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said, this is all well and good, but one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people. As though our lives have no meaning and no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. And the people who helped me most arrive at that kind of language were African writers. Chinua Achebe, Bessie Head. Those writers who could assume the centrality of their race because they were Africans. And they didn't explain anything to white people. Those questions were incomprehensible to them those questions that I would have as a minority living in an all-white country like the United States. But when I read um, the poetry of Cesar, or the poetry of Senghor, or the novels particularly, Things Fall Apart was more important to me than anything. Only because there was a language, there was a posture, there were the parameters. I could step in now, and I didn't have to be consumed by or be concerned by the white gaze. That was the liberation for me. It has nothing to do with who reads the books. Everyone, I hope, of any race, any gender, any country. But my sovereignty and my authority as a racialized person had to be struck immediately with the very first book. Mm, Hello. She was born Chloe Wofford in 1931. Her middle name is often cited as Anthony, but apparently the birth certificate says Ardelia, which was her mother's mother's name. We know her today as Toni Morrison, and she is the reigning sovereign of literary America. Her novels have become permanent fixtures on bookshelves and syllabi across the country, and her masterpiece, Beloved, is widely regarded as the greatest American novel of the last 30 years, if not more. It's in the conversation anyway. How do we understand such greatness? How do we begin to approach it? We'll have some thoughts on that today as we take a look at the majesty of Toni Morrison on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join us today. Toni Morrison, this is kind of a tough one. What do you say about Toni Morrison that hasn't been said already and better? How do you deal with current excellence and fame on a History of Literature podcast? She's won every prize. She's received every accolade. She's been interviewed by everyone who... Gets paid a lot more than I do to do this kind of thing. Where do you begin 
I'm going to tell my own story of reading Toni Morrison and see where that takes us. We'll have some facts about Toni Morrison in there as well. For me, Toni Morrison is literature. That doesn't mean you have to love her books or love all of her books, or that if you don't love her books, you're doing something wrong. That's not how I view literature. If someone comes up to me and says, I hate Henry James, or I can't read Faulkner, I just can't get into it, or I decided not to read Proust or Joyce or whoever, I just nod and say, yes, that's fine. Life is short. I get it. Our most popular podcast episode was the overrated books you don't need to read episode. People are struggling with literature today. It's hard. We all have hard jobs. I'm with you on that. Wake up at four to do this podcast or my own stuff. Get the kids ready for school at 6.30. Go to work at 8. Come home at 6.30 p.m. Take the kids to practice or whatever. Try to keep up with the news. Try to keep up with family members. Get the house ready for the holidays. Fix the leaky shower. Work, fix, buy, cook, work, commute, email, read. I get it. I get it. Where does literature fit in? Give me some literature. I don't need to read, Jack. (laughs) And even though... Toni Morrison is as good as it gets, folks. I'm not going to say you must read her novels any more than I've said you must read Flaubert or Conrad or O'Connor or Austin or Tolstoy or anyone else on our list. Chekhov, Kafka. Sometimes authors, even my favorite authors, just don't click with people. Sometimes it's not the right place in your life or the right time. Sometimes you just need the idea of the author. It was something I learned early on. One of my beloved teachers said something like that to me. She said, I haven't read Balzac and Stendhal, but I know what's in there. Sometimes that's enough. Literature is not like that for me. I went through a phase where I read stuff because I felt like I needed to. I had to find out. I had to know. I was searching. I was reading about a book a day, sometimes more. I had to read. I had time to read and a hunger to read whatever I could. I took it all in. It was kind of desperate, frankly. And so I went for all the great white whales, starting with Moby Dick. Ha ha. Throw that in there. And Virginia Woolf and Robert Musile and Kafka and Chekhov and George Eliot and everyone I could lay my hands on. And someone would say, hey, what about Nick Hornby? That's fun. And I would say, fun? What do you mean by fun? What could be more fun than this book I'm reading, The Life of Johnson by James Boswell? I was kind of a fanatic, kind of a lunatic. And so, here we go. College, where I'm reading all of these books for courses, enormous 18th century novels like Tom Jones and Clarissa, and on the side, I'm reading Nabokov and Updike and Roth and Bellow. And once in a while, I read some mystery or detective novel or something if I'm stuck at an airport or at my parents' house, and I've run out of stuff to read. It's spring, a new set of classes, a new set of books, and all this reading on the side, all the deep dives into authors and eras and courses I didn't get a chance to take. And in the middle of all this, right in the middle, Toni Morrison, American author, wins the Nobel Prize would be hard to be a student today, an English major in particular, and not wind up reading Beloved for a course. But back then, Toni Morrison was just coming into her own. This was pre-Oprah Toni Morrison. She was hugely respected and admired. Her novels were already an event. 
She was on my list of authors I wanted to read, but I hadn't yet gotten to her novels when she won the Nobel Prize. That's another thing that drives me crazy when people talk about reading books, and frankly, I would say it drives me crazy about the podcast, but I don't want to make it seem like I'm complaining. Because I understand these comments and the spirit in which they're intended. People say, why haven't you done X author yet, Jack? Why haven't you talked about this book, my favorite, yet? Now, like I said, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. 99% of these emails, even more, 99.9% of them say, I know there are a lot of books out there and I appreciate everything you've covered so far. Please take this as a humble suggestion. I love emails like that. I love suggestions. I love taking requests. I love hearing from listeners. Please don't stop sending me emails or tweets telling me about the authors or books you'd love to hear more about. In fact, I've drawn up a list of authors I want to get to in 2019, and almost everyone on there has been requested at one point or another. So I truly do appreciate what people are saying, and I know that you aren't trying to be bossy or anything like that. 99.9% of you, anyway. But once in a while, I get the email or the comment or the feedback saying, why haven't you done so-and-so yet? Or, what does this guy know? He hasn't even talked about so-and-so. And I think, what am I, a machine cranking out content? Do you know what it's like to to do one of these podcasts? I have to summon up some energy to do it. I have to care. It doesn't work if I don't care. I'm not just reading from an encyclopedia here. Maybe that's what you want from your podcast, but guess what? Your favorite author might not be on that list either. This is a huge topic. We're not mapping an ocean here by just drawing some lines where the coastlines are. We're in the ocean, splashing around. We're on a raft in the middle of the ocean, sailing from one island to the next, going where the wind and the waves take us. Sometimes it's not in our control. <laughs> Sometimes we catch a glimpse of shore. Sometimes we see nothing but the horizon, nothing but the sun and the stars and the fish that sometimes jump into our boat. That's what this podcast is, a life raft. My life raft. I'm sorry if it's not the one you want. I'm sure there are other podcasts out there that will march through your favorite books in the order you want and say the things you want them to say, just like think of your own reading. Did you read every book all at once? Or did it happen over time? (laughs) Maybe exercise a little patience, people. I just can't do this any other way. I've tried to please everyone, but I found that it's too hard. So, great. Now I'm in a terrible mood. I don't know if there's anything that could cheer me up. Yes. Who is it? Who is it? Who? Oh. Elizabeth Bennett, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice, here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Oh, I stand corrected. I am cheered up. However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, 
has offered to babysit our beloved little one. Anytime, so Darcy Elizabeth, and I anytime. can catch some Zeds. <laughs> yes. Won't you please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Lizzie, how did you know I needed you today? Now I am indeed cheered up. <laughs> let's do some, let's help the Bennett's do some Zed catching. How did you know, Lizzie? How did you know I needed you today? Well, please do support the show, everyone, as Lizzie requests. But you know what? Let's not even go there today. I'm not even going to give out the link. Let's give that a rest. I'm not going to complain about the podcast and and doing the podcast and complain about the 0.01% of the feedback I get and then ask people to support the show anyway. That's not good karma. Let's just move on and get to the good stuff. Skip Patreon this week, people. I'm thankful to everyone who signed up so far, but let's just get to the literature. So there I am in college. Toni Morrison wins the Nobel Prize for Literature 1993, an American. This is pretty rare, actually. It's happened five times in my lifetime, and I'm getting older all the time. It's one of my specialties, getting older. I try to do it every day, work on it a little bit. But of course, there are days when I'm just too busy. I have to catch up on the weekend. Anyway, five Nobel Prizes. Saul Bellow in 1976. I was too young to really get that one, though certainly Bellow became a huge figure in my life and still is. That's another one on the list for 2019. I.B. Singer in 1978 and Joseph Brodsky in 1987. Those didn't really register for me. I wasn't reading a lot then. I wasn't aware of what it meant to win a Nobel Prize. They're good writers. I've barely read anything by them. I guess I've read Brodsky quite a bit. But at the time, I hadn't read anything by them. I wasn't really interested in literature anyway. But now, here we go. Newly minted English major, 1993. Suddenly studying this stuff with gusto. Full immersion into literature, full speed ahead. And an American named Toni Morrison has won the Nobel Prize for literature. And she's got six books to read. Outstanding. Can't wait. So... I graduated from college and went off to Taiwan, and every time I touch on Taiwan, I feel like I should tell a few stories because I have some good ones, but I know, I know, I know. People want to hear about the books. So let me just say, there I am on a motorcycle, teaching English, riding from one lesson to another, and learning Chinese myself from a big blue book and a whole lot of flashcards, which I had made. Stopping off in the tea houses to learn Chinese from flashcards, reading Ezra Pound on the nature of Chinese as a written medium for poetry. Looking around and seeing Chinese everywhere, all around me, not sure where I am sometimes. My, <laughs> my cousin actually drove me around for three days on the back of his motorcycle until I bought mine. And once, after a couple of days, he pulled in and we jumped off and he said, do you know where we are? And I said, nope. <laughs> and he just shook his head and said, okay, we're home. And I, I looked around for some kind of identifier, but all I saw was Chinese, and it looked magical, like drops of water or mist, a colorful, swirling magic potion swirling around me, but none of it distinguishable from anything else I had seen that day. It was like 
being in a city on an endless loop. And then as the weeks went by and the months, I started to see where I was and feel more comfortable and everything stopped looking so strange and mysterious and I could tell what was what and even read some signs and I was suddenly home and I could get my own apartment and the landlord, who was an American friend, the place was owned by his Chinese father-in-law, gave me the keys and said, have you ever lived alone before? And I said, no. And he said, enjoy it. It may never happen again in your life. He had a wife and little kids, and he told me that everyone should live alone at some point, at least once, because you really learn who you are. You're, you see what your truest self is. I think that's probably true, at least in part. When you're all alone, nobody's watching. What are you left with? What do you do? And what I learned, at least at that time, was that I was a reader. (laughs) When it came right down to it, I wanted to be reading more than working, more than eating, more than sleeping, more than going out. I liked doing all those things. I had friends, and I liked my friends. I eventually had a girlfriend, and I liked her too. But what I really wanted to do, where I really felt the most alive, was when I came home, set down my bag by the door, and went into my bedroom. It was scorchingly hot, oppressively hot, but my bedroom had a room air conditioner in the window. It had no furnishings, really. There was a closet where I hid my money, stored my suitcase. There was a desk. There was a plain mattress on the floor, on the tile floor, just a mattress, no box spring, no frame, just a flat mattress on a flat tile floor. I cranked up the air conditioning and got down on the bed, and oh yes, there were piles of books. Edith Wharton used to write novels in bed, and she wrote a page and finished it and dropped it on the floor, and a servant came scurrying in to pick up the page and run out and have it typed up. That's a little like how I felt there in bed, reclining, except I had no servant. I was just in bed, and I wasn't writing. I was reading. I had the books piled up next to me. And I could just finish one, reach out <laughs> reach out to the pile, and start the next. I had hours and hours to do this. My schedule was irregular. I might finish my work at 11 in the morning one day and not have to be anywhere until 4 the next afternoon. 29 hours. Minus a few for sleeping and eating. The rest for reading. I looked for thick books books that would engage me, big novels by great novelists. Thomas Hardy was there, I remember. Henry James, Proust, of course. Saul Bellow. And Toni Morrison, Sula, The Bluest Eye, Jazz, Song of Solomon, Tar Baby, and Beloved. I've read her other books since then, but those are the six. Those are my six, the ones I love the most. And it's not because I say they're the best. Not necessarily. It's that they fit into my life at the right time. At that time, they opened doors. There are a lot of different ways to look at literature. It's like a mountain. Taking photographs of it, that's one thing you can do with a mountain. Admire it from afar. Fly over top of it and look at it from above. Draw a picture of it. Paint it. Climb it. Walk toward it. Ski down it. And talking about literature has many different activities as well. You can rank books and authors. What's the best and why? You can explore themes, 
You can read excerpts. You can talk about how they affect you personally. You can look at the effects that a that a particular book had on society or the world. You can figure out what inspired the author and examine whether the author achieved what he or she was trying to achieve. You can trace the book in the current of history, see what flowed toward that book and what flowed after. All of that is interesting to me. I take different approaches, as you've probably noticed. Sometimes I just talk about a book with someone else with no particular agenda. And so, let me adopt an approach here and give a kind of personal reading of Toni Morrison. She blew me away, just blew me away. Her books were so rich and so full and so imaginative and so beautiful and so exquisite and elegant and so forceful. It was powerful stuff. It was amazing. And they fit right in with that pile of books on my floor. There's a great story of Picasso going to look at his paintings when they were hung in the Prado. And he saw them on the walls there with the Goyas and the Velasquezes and all the others. And he said, mine fit. That's, that was the test for him. To see them compared with all the art that he had revered for all of his life. He said, they belong. And there I was with Flaubert and Kafka and Joyce and all the others that I had on the stack by my mattress. And Toni Morrison is there and she fits. She fits right in. There's no question. There's no sense, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe she's a minor figure, a flash in the pan. Maybe she's trendy. Maybe she's as good as we have today, but but the real heyday of the novel is past us. Maybe she doesn't deserve to to walk the same earth as these other giants. Nope. This is literature. This is as good as it gets, but also as good as it's ever been. You can compare her works with works by Faulkner or Hemingway or Virginia Woolf or whomever you want, and you can say that you like one better than the other, or that this one is your favorite or not your favorite. But here's what you won't say. Eh, mm, why Toni Morrison? <laughs> you want, <laughs> if that's something you were inclined to say. We're not going to be dropping Toni Morrison from the syllabus anytime soon. Her greatness will keep her in the pantheon as long as we have a pantheon. And I've noticed something recently. I'm going to call it a backlash, but it feels even more pernicious than that. We used to have cannon wars, we called them, and we used to have political correctness wars and all of that. And now there's a new phrase that I see that I think is doing the same kind of work, woke, when it's used as a pejorative term. Oh, you're just trying to be woke. You're trying to show everyone you're woke. You're just a woke hipster. It's a strange way to go through life, assuming the insincerity of others. And yet it seems like it's always going to be with us, this attitude. Well, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know what's behind that impulse. I don't know what's in their hearts, just as they don't know what's in mine. I can just judge the statements, I guess, or the actions, certainly. But when it comes to literature, which is subjective, what's the point? If someone says they don't like something and if they can't articulate why, other than it didn't resonate with them, I don't need to accuse that person of hating women or 
racial prejudice or anything else. Maybe the book didn't resonate with them. It happens. Mike Palindrome, our old friend, famously stopped reading Don Quixote. It's not that he doesn't like Spanish novels or Spain or Spanish people or the Spanish language. It's that one character vomited into another character's mouth, and so he stopped reading. He, he had had enough. He set the book down. It's okay to do that. Things might be different for a college professor or certainly for someone in charge of an English department. Different if you're a publisher. Definitely different if you're making an anthology. You might have some obligations. You might want to make sure that your own preferences aren't being too heavily weighted. If you have 50 authors you've selected for an anthology and they're all white men, you might want to ask yourself why that is. Maybe get some other opinions before you put the thing out. Maybe you need to take your thumb off the scale, open your mind, think through some of your decisions. But if you're like me, just an amateur, a reader, a citizen of the world, an explorer, a searcher, find what lets you search. Don't stop, though. Don't get in a rut and pretend like you're exploring if you're not. You can't see the ocean if you refuse to look outside your boat. At least once in a while, you'll miss some context. You'll miss some possibilities. But back to Toni Morrison. Here's what I was learning back in those primordial soup years. I was trying to figure out literature and what it was about. And I was trying to figure out who I was at the same time. And there's a way to figure out who you are by saying, yes, this is me. Look at all my features, my background, my history, my family, my qualities, and that will define me. A definition is all in place, ready-made, like a nice store-bought costume. And all you have to do is step right into it. So, I was a man in my early 20s from Wisconsin, Protestant, white, from a small town, son of teachers, grew up surrounded by farms and factories. Those are all potential definitions, but here's the problem. I didn't really think those categories did me justice. I saw all of those categories in other people, and they seemed to fit. They were comfortable in their skin, and I wasn't. Protestant? I was an agnostic, if anything. Wisconsin? I had left Wisconsin and didn't really know that I was going to be going back anytime soon. Farms and factories? I knew the guys who grew up on farms and factories. The ones who grew up on farms where they felt the pull of each season deep in their fiber, and the routine of the chores, the internal alarm clock of the cows that needed milking, and the way they scanned the sky for rain, feeling it deeply. Or the car guys, the factory guys, the, the guys who could spend all afternoon with their heads buried under the hood, fixing things in the engine. That was small-town Wisconsin, but that wasn't me. I barely fished. I didn't hunt at all. I had the Green Bay Packers in my blood. I was the grandson of cheesemakers. Had a couple things going for me. I had all the holiday traditions and my friends and my school and the Charlie Brown landscape that was so influential. The desolate, desolate, snowy landscape. Think of a plain line drawn across the bottom of those Charlie Brown cartoons, those comics. That was Wisconsin, too. 
So I had that. I had the snow, all of that. A lot of Wisconsin in me, but not everything. Half the things I liked, Monty Python and Orson Welles and Italian operas and so many other things, as I got older, they were all pretty foreign to the world of Wisconsin. And so, like many others, I tried to define myself by what I wasn't. I wasn't a car guy. I wasn't a factory worker. When I got to college, I could see this defining by the negative further. I wasn't pre-med. I wasn't gay. I wasn't Japanese. I wasn't in the orchestra. I wasn't on the football team. All those things that seemed to form other people's identity, I just didn't have. I wasn't a math genius or a chess genius or a genius genius. You can maybe guess where this is headed. Toni Morrison, great American author, Nobel Prize, every prize, esteemed novels. Well, says the person struggling with their identity, that's great for her. But what's going to be in those books for me? I'm not a woman. I'm not African American. So it might be great, but it's probably not going to be my thing. I think part of me had that mindset when I opened the books. I wasn't saying that I didn't think it could be great or that she wouldn't be deserving or anything like that. I know some people instinctively react to a Toni Morrison accolade by saying, oh, that's an affirmative action pick. Oh, that's, that's just people trying to show they're not prejudiced. White liberal guilt bending over backwards, trying to be woke. That wasn't my mindset at all. That's not what I mean. I was not thinking that it was probably overrated. I thought it was probably excellent. But I did think, well, maybe I won't quite get it. Maybe it won't resonate with me. Maybe it's going to feel more like listening into someone else's conversation instead of a conversation that I'm invited to join. So I opened the books. They're on my mattress on the floor. Started with the first one, The Bluest Eye from 1970. And that was not how I felt. I did not feel like I was overhearing a conversation that Toni Morrison was having with someone else. I don't know who, a black audience, a black reader. Maybe there was a bit of that, if only because it was different from some of the other books I read. But it was because I felt like I had a whole world to catch up to. That's how I'd put it. A whole world that could encompass all of America, all of the good, all of the bad, all of the history, every religion, every culture, every state. It was vast, and I was part of it. But I wasn't part of just some of it. That wasn't enough. I was part of much more, the totality. That's who I was. If I could be big enough to realize it and accept it for what it was and what it meant. Now, this isn't really unique to Morrison. I felt the same way when I read Tolstoy. I felt part of me has to be Russian here. I'm a human being. I live in the world. I have to understand this temperament and these desires and this history. I have to understand the 19th century Russian mindset as it's being depicted in these pages. It's true of literature. It's true of reading great literature. We have to expand to fill the universe that the literary work creates. But this was a little different for me because I was undergoing a pretty radical shift in my own identity. I was living abroad and not just in the junior year abroad way that I had done when I was a student in Italy. 
You're still a student, still connected to a university, one foot in Italy, one foot in America. Now I had both feet firmly or uneasily, maybe I should say, in Taiwan. Everything I owned was in one little closet at the foot of my bed. I was starting from scratch, a blank slate, an empty vessel, and the thing that came pouring into my vessel was America. America. For the first 18 years of my life, I had no idea what was happening outside Wisconsin in the rest of America. I'd get a little news from New York and Los Angeles thanks to television, but I didn't really know what was happening in Alaska or San Diego or Brooklyn or New Orleans. What did Texas have to do with me or Oklahoma or Kentucky or Florida? What did anything outside of Wisconsin or even outside of my own little triangle in Wisconsin have to do with me? What did slavery have to do with me? The Revolutionary War or the Salem witch hunts? McCarthyism. Those were paragraphs in history books. I wasn't there. I didn't really have a way into it. I didn't really know what I should do to try or why I should try. What did that have to do with me? So what? But in Taiwan, the distinctions between me as an American and the world as the rest of the world became huge. I saw what I did have in common with anyone from America, no matter the race, no matter the religion, no matter the region of the country. There were huge things that we shared, principles, ideals, common history like the Reagan years and the tail end of the Cold War, and deep history like the way slavery had led to the Civil War, which gave, t- gave way to Jim Crow laws and lynching and segregation, which led to the Civil Rights Movement, and how the Depression and World War II and Vietnam all intertwined with all of the above, affecting us all, changing us all, deepening us all. All our ancestors, all that blood and sweat and toil, the loving and hating and struggling, the good and the evil, all that was in us whether our ancestors had arrived in the 20th century, as mine had, or if they'd arrived centuries before. And so, there's a temptation to say, Toni Morrison, sure, wonderful prize winner, but female and African-American, and think, well, I'll read it to know what's in it, but it's not going to be my book, not really. It's going to be important to other people who aren't me. It's a conversation other people will have, And I'm sure we'll enjoy having, and it will enrich them. But for me, I'll just be over here on the side observing. But in opening the book, The Bluest Eye, I didn't feel shut out from that conversation, or that Morrison had only sliced off part of the country to take as her own. I felt like the conversation was with me, author to reader, and I had this fabulous mind, Morrison's mind, that I had been given access to. And this incredible story, the bluest eye, a little girl with black skin grows up wishing she had blue eyes. She's nine or 10. It's 1941. She's in Ohio in America, depression, childhood headed toward World War II. And there it is. Bam. I'm in. This is about me. I might not identify with everything in it, every experience, but I can't dismiss those as just belonging to others. To understand who I am, I have to understand this girl. 
This is the world I inhabit, the one I'm in. It's part of who I am. I need to understand her longing and how that came about and what it means for a human being to feel this in 1941, if I am to understand what my country was in 1931 and 41 and 51, if I'm to understand the Great Depression, and I should because my grandparents lived through it, it transformed them and they handed a lot of that to my parents, and my parents gave a lot of that to me, if I'm to understand that period in American history, I need to understand the way this little girl grew up in Ohio, and Toni Morrison is bringing me that window and inviting me to look through it into the heart and mind of this girl, and to identify with the girl to the extent I can, to empathize, to recognize the ways that I've felt like that too. Can't get there totally, but there are a lot of aspects of it I can share, and the ones I don't I can try to share and learn from the trying. And so I do, and it opens me up, and it teaches me things. It's a book that looks into you, even as you look into it. There's a great quote by Toni Morrison where she was talking to some creative writing students, I think, and she said, I'm not interested in your little lives. (laughs) And my guess is she had had her fill of getting stories to comment upon from those students of a simple boyfriend and girlfriend story taking place on a campus where there's a, a breakup or something that seems monumental at the time, but in the larger scheme of things, is maybe not so monumental. Toni Morrison's reading that and thinking, where are the big themes? Who's taking it all on? Why limit your ambition? Sure, it's tempting to be a miniaturist. There's some value in that too, and some miniaturists get at some huge universal truths. The greatest of the artists can do that, but don't be small-minded, don't be provincial, don't be tiny. Be huge. Even if your subject matter is small, go big. America is big. The world is big. Humans are big. God is big. The universe is big. History is big. And literature is big. If you're not ready to be big... You're not ready to write a book worth reading. Really, I haven't talked at all about Toni Morrison's background yet. I know that's part of the deal is I give you at least some facts like that. I assume it's familiar to most or all of you. She's such a well-known figure. She was born in Ohio in a working-class family in 1931. Her parents were from the South, Alabama and Georgia. Her father had seen a lynching at age 15, That affected him deeply and drove him northward, hoping for better conditions. And then, when Toni Morrison was two, their landlord set fire to their house after the family had fallen behind in the rent. While they were in it. Morrison cites, she doesn't remember the experience, but she she heard the stories of it, which obviously (laughs) prominent in her family's mind. And she cites that experience and her family's response to it as being hugely important to her growing up. Her family laughed at the utter overreaction of the landlord. Here's a guy willing to burn a house that he owns because of his anger with the people inside. As Morrison says, it was bizarrely evil 
willing to burn up the lives of people inside, children inside, willing to burn them up for the sake of $4 a month, which the working class family could not pay on time. A lot of darkness going into that kind of feeling. And her family laughed, a dignified, elevated response, a response with some integrity, a way not to be depressed at the reality of the world and the worst of human nature that surrounds you. It's a way to reclaim your own dignity, to take it back from the treatment you receive at the hands of others. Morrison said she's mostly depressed, but she laughs a lot. The world is a harsh place. People are horrible to each other much of the time. So let's respond with dignity and joy and not let it drag us down. That's the Morrison approach. Some of the other things she took from her childhood is that she listened to African-American folk tales and ghost stories and sang songs. She became a Catholic. She discovered literature, Jane Austen and Tolstoy and many others. She discovered the power of imagination and she was starting to formulate what it meant to be black in America from the perspective of self-definition and discovery, especially for an aspiring artist. And a female artist is another important point. A lot of the voices she heard were black African-American men. Years later, in 1993, she said, I know my students are almost desperate for a language in which to talk about race. All they do is what we normally do, call names, or talk about little anecdotes that happen to us, or say we have to be tolerant. That's not an intellectual proposition, a call to be a nicer person. End quote. But where do you find that ability to go deep? How do you carve out that territory for yourself? It's something every writer struggles with, some more than others. And when you're faced with something as deeply entrenched as race in America, and that's part of what you need to come to terms with before your imagination has room to explore, your struggle has a whole different set of concepts to wrestle with, especially for someone who was a pioneer, as she was. She said, quote, Black people and black things and Africa-type things are understood to be a blank space for white imagination. It's the heart of darkness. No Africans talk in there. It's just some place to go. Like Isaac Dennison said, the Africans were like forms of nature, were this fantasy world of otherness, end quote. Well, if that's the landscape, how open up that discourse for yourself? There isn't a template, not an exact one anyway. You look at models from other cultures, Austin, Tolstoy, how did they do it? How does their experience help you? Morrison didn't know, at least not at the time period we're talking about. From Ohio at age 18, Morrison went to the historically black university, Howard, in Washington, D.C., where she blossomed. She also encountered racially segregated bus stations and diners for the first time in her life. D.C. is that Southernmost northern city or northernmost southern city. It's a place you get, you get people from both sides encountering the other world for the first time sometimes. I see that throughout history. For her, coming from the north, it was the glimpse of the south that she hadn't yet fully had in Lorraine, Ohio, which was an integrated town. This is still only 
1949 we're talking about. We're a few years away from the emergence of Martin Luther King Jr., but it's helpful to put her in that context. She's two years younger than Martin Luther King. When he emerges as the leader of the civil rights movement at around age 25, she'll be 23 on her way from her English major at Howard to her master's degree at Cornell University. From there, she spends nine years teaching in Texas for two years, then back at Howard for seven. She's no longer Chloe Wofford now. She's calling herself Tony, after St. Anthony, her baptismal saint, and Morrison after she had married Harold Morrison, a Jamaican architect whom she met at Howard when she was teaching there. They were married for about six years before they got divorced. During the marriage, they had two sons. She still hasn't written a novel at this point. Instead, she gets a job in publishing at Random House and starts moving from her master's topics, Faulkner and Wolf, into the world of African-American literature, editing African-American authors like Tony Cade Mombara and Angela Davis, and bringing forth books by African authors like Wole Suyinka and Shinwa Achebe. Her first novel is published in 1970, The Bluest Eye. In 1974, she pushes for a book that Random House was uncertain about publishing, The Black Book, an anthology that includes photographs and essays and other documents recording the Black experience in America. The book was well-received. All this is easy to see now as part of what formed her, her interests, her motivation, her own information-gathering, the fuel for her imagination, which was getting ready to fully take off. I'm imagining a jet airplane on the runway, engine roaring, a second novel, Sula, about a woman who stands for a community as the personification of evil. This is a really rich book about motherhood and friendship and the, the cross of generations and the transition from slavery to non-slavery, which is not a bright line, but a big, long smear in American history. It's a fantastic book. It was nominated for the National Book Award in 1975. Morrison had an interesting take on the 1970s. She called it an unfairly maligned decade. When she looked back, she said, looking back, it was a decade when men thought it was important to listen to women, and women thought it was important to listen to men, and white and black people were trying to listen to each other. Wasn't perfect, but the attempts were being made, and there was something valuable and worthy in those attempts. In 1977, her novel Song of Solomon made her famous. Here's a passage from Song of Solomon so you can get a taste of her style. Quote, the lengths to which lost love drove men and women never surprised them. They had seen women pull their dresses over their heads and howl like dogs for lost love, and men who sat in doorways with pennies in their mouths for lost love. Thank God, they whispered to themselves. Thank God I ain't never had one of them graveyard loves. Empire State himself was a good example of one. He'd married a white girl in France and brought her home. Happy as a fly and just as industrious, he lived with her for six years until he came home to find her with another man, another black man. And when he discovered that his white wife loved not only him, not only this other black man, but the whole race, he sat down, closed his mouth, and never said another word. Railroad Tommy had given him a janitor's job to save him from the poorhouse, workhouse, or nuthouse, one. 
end quote. 70s and her success. 1970 was good timing for her. As a novelist, there was an awakening and a growing interest in her subject matter, but also this was still the era when novels really, really mattered. She started winning prizes. She was now on the cover of Newsweek with the headline Black Magic. (laughs) Not sure what to think about that, actually. Her kids were older. She'd been raising them as a single mom all this time, waking up at four in the morning to write. She wrote another novel, Tar Baby, in 1981. It's not considered one of her best. In 1983, she was able to leave publishing and spend more time writing. She taught English at various colleges, and then, in 1987, her novel Beloved lifted her into the stratosphere. Beloved. Where do we begin with this book? I don't want to spoil the book. I'll say that it has a supernatural element to it, and it goes about as deep and elemental as it's possible for a book about humans to go. Kind of a Sophie's Choice type of depth, if that's enough of a hint without being a spoiler. It was popular, critically acclaimed, and it has stayed that way. There's no book comparable to Beloved, not in America anyway. Nothing from the past 50 years has been more likely to be considered among the great American novels when all is said and done. What do we have in America? What do we point to? We have Huck Finn and The Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick and The Great Gatsby. What else can go into that category? The Catcher in the Rye, some might say. Augie March, Grapes of Wrath, Invisible Man. Throw in some Wharton, throw in some Faulkner. We have On the Road to Kill a Mockingbird. Those are all great books, all worthy. But what about from 1975 to now? What else besides Beloved? Raymond Carver's short stories? You can see where Beloved fits already. We're talking Huck Finn territory, Moby Dick territory. Great Gatsby territory. This is Picasso again, looking at the walls of the Prado, seeing a painting, the procession of paintings, and saying, yeah, this fits. I can't see another book from the last half century that has a better claim at standing with Moby Dick and the Great Gatsby in excellence or importance than Beloved. It's a national treasure. Here's a taste of Beloved. Quote, There is a loneliness that can be rocked. Arms crossed, knees drawn up, holding, holding on. This motion, unlike a ship's, smooths and contains the rocker. It's an inside kind, wrapped tight like skin. Then there is a loneliness that roams. No rocking can hold it down. It is alive on its own a dry and spreading thing that makes the sound of one's own feet going seem to come from a far-off place. End quote. And then came Jazz, the last of the six books I read. They're in Taiwan, age 22. And the Nobel Prize was next on the list for Ms. Morrison. Here's a passage from Jazz. Quote, I'm crazy about this city. Daylight slants like a razor, cutting the buildings in half. 
In the top half, I see looking faces, and it's not easy to tell which are people, which the work of stonemasons. Below is shadow, where any blasé thing takes place, clarinets and lovemaking, fists and the voices of sorrowful women. A city like this one makes me dream tall and feel in on things. Hep. It's the bright steel rocking above the shade below that does it. When I look over strips of green grass lining the river at church steeples and into the cream and copper halls of apartment buildings, I'm strong. Alone, yes, but top-notch and indestructible, like the city in 1926, when all the wars are over and there will never be another one. The people down there in the shadow are happy about that. At last, at last, everything's ahead. End quote. Morrison went on to publish several more novels and has become a kind of intellectual Oprah, somehow. The resident guru whose achievement and personal characteristics make her pronouncements like words from on high. And I say this, why? Well, it might be the second time I've called her, compared her with Oprah. I think of Oprah as wanting to be Toni Morrison. That's why. When I see the episodes where Oprah chooses as her for her book club, one of Toni Morrison's books. Nothing gets Oprah excited more than to talk to Toni Morrison and to imagine her way into the books. She also has produced some of the movies and appeared in them. There's a, a deep connection that I think Oprah feels with Toni Morrison, and I think it's brought Toni Morrison to a lot of people who might not otherwise have discovered her. And part of this is obviously because they're both women, they're both African-Americans. But I think also Oprah has this deep connection with country. I think there's a lot of that that runs through Morrison and the span of generations. A lot of themes that Oprah gravitates toward. So where was I? The resident guru whose achievement and personal characteristics make her pronouncements like words from on high. That's intellectual Oprah. That's Toni Morrison. I would imagine that every Lifetime Achievement Award committee, every literary panel giving out a prize, has to ask themselves before handing out the next winner, have we given it to Toni Morrison yet? <laughs> if not, we better do that first. Everyone, white, black, male, female, is kind of in her shadow in our era. That's not to say she dominates the era or she's the only great author. She doesn't take up all the oxygen in the room or anything like that. It's kind of like Willie Mays, though. When you're talking about great athletes, we often have a sense of what flaws to expect. You see a big man like Shaq dominating the basketball court, and you think, yeah, but can he shoot free throws? Because we remember Wilt Chamberlain and his Achilles heel. And you think, okay, sure, dominating player, but maybe not the greatest of all time because of that weakness. Those missed free throws can lose games. And you hear about a baseball player who's a magician with a bat who hits nearly 400, a Tony Gwynn, say, or a Rod Carew, and you think, sure, but can he hit for power? Or you hear about a guy who can hit 60 homers in a season, and you think, yeah, but how's his defense? Can he play the field? Or a quarterback who's broken every record but never won the Super Bowl. We're trained to think in terms of weaknesses, flaws. We do that with authors, too, sometimes. Raymond Carver, excellent writer, one of the best. Extraordinary effects. But wouldn't it have been a little better if he'd written a nice big novel? Is he really up there with Melville if he didn't? 
And then there's an athlete like Willie Mays. Hits for average, hits for power, runs, fields, throws. He's the best at everything. And so we talk about things like his cap always falls off when he's running after the ball. That's not a flaw. That's not a weakness. That's just an observation that was made because people didn't have a flaw to talk about with him. He was a Hall of Famer, full stop. No weakness in his game. Well, Toni Morrison is the literary equivalent of that. She writes books, ambitious books, and she pulls it off. Her skill and dedication match her ambition, and her ambition matches the ambition of the greatest novelist of all time. Does she have a masterpiece? Yes. Does she have a long career? Yes. Does she make um, a giant contribution to letters? Yep. Was she an innovator? Yes. Was she a traditionalist? Yes. She's as good as it gets. She's on literary Mount Rushmore. She's the statue in the front of the library. We talk about her projects and what she's chosen to do, her stylistic quirks, her decisions, not because they indicate her flaws, but because her position is kind of unassailable. She wrote about a little girl? Fine. A ghost? Great. She's earned that right to be viewed with admiration, not with alarm. We may quarrel with Morrison, but we don't quibble. Or if we do, it shows our limits, not hers. That's a mountain, and it can be intimidating like all mountains, but it can also be personal. You can grow up on the mountain, and you can explore it. You can be part of it. And that's what I've been trying to express here, that Morrison is not just this intimidating guru, and her books are not there just for us to dutifully read and try to learn from. There aren't lessons in there for us to absorb and digest. They're not the same lessons for everyone. We're not reading her books for something as basic as, well, let's read this to be good people and to become more tolerant. It's not a badge of honor. It's not an after-school special. It's deeper than that. It's darker. It's richer. It's more essential. There's a reason why I felt compelled to give you a sense of who I was in Taiwan and who I was trying to be and what exactly I was trying to understand about myself when I was reading Toni Morrison. My landlord was right. Living alone did help me to learn who I was, the fundamentals of it. I was a reader, if anything. I was a citizen of the world and curious, an explorer of the mind as well as the body. I was not a great fit anywhere, but I could kind of blend in and find a home just about everywhere. I had found myself in the middle of the ocean, and I found that I could live on the raft as long as I had a pile of books next to me. I was hungry for sustenance, for intellectual engagement, for a way to dig as deep as I could into understanding what it meant to be this dumb kid from Wisconsin with no real plan and no real status and no real hopes. I was, it turned out, an admirer of Toni Morrison who made me laugh, who made me think, who challenged me and made me feel like I should know more than I did about my country than I actually did, but who also made me feel like learning more would be worth the effort, not because it was the right thing to do or an admirable thing to do, but because it was essential for me to do. There in Taiwan, on that mattress on the floor, air conditioning on full blast, and drowning out the chaos of the crowded city, 
I read those six Toni Morrison novels and learned that for all my confusion and ineptitude, I was, essentially, a child of this planet, a spirit alive in the 20th century, an American. And so was she. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Oh, I'm exhausted. And I'm sure you are as well. Please hold off on your negative comments for a while. Okay, fine. Fire away. I'm a big man. I can take the hits. I'm here for you, whatever you need me to be. Giving you this podcast for free. (laughs) Dear Santa, your presents were all crap last year. Do better next time. Is that what you people wrote when you were children? Or did you just decide to take that approach as adults? My goodness, and to those of you who've chosen positive energy as your preferred method of dealing with things like free podcasts, my thanks to you. You are keeping me afloat here on this ocean. I wish I could do better for your sake. Let's pause for a quick break here since I haven't done that yet. Help to pay the bills. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. And we're back. Obligations are met. Hey, folks, it's holiday season. Mike has been overwhelmed at work, but he does have his solo episode coming up soon, and we'll have another draft, too, a draft with a twist, and many more goodies besides. So stay tuned. Subscribe now. (laughs) You won't want to miss any of the forthcoming celebratory goodness, a cornucopia. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.